Today's sponsor is Audible.com, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com slash decode. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me best as the person who gave Marissa Mayer her purple kitten idea, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about Silicon Valley players, big ideas, and how they are changing the world we live in. Today in the red chair is John Borthwick, Betaworks CEO and an entrepreneur and investor whom I have known since he was head of new product development at AOL, which means we're both very old. John spoke with Recode's media senior editor, Peter Kafka, in New York about podcasting, investing, and a whole lot more. Peter? Thanks, Karen. I'm here with John Borthwick. He's the CEO of Betaworks. You guys describe yourself as a, a startup. Startup studio. Startup yeah. studio, and we'll translate that in a second. But you're, you're the company that's invested in lots of really interesting companies, including Twitter and Tumblr. You've built a lot of interesting companies like Chartbeat and Bitly. Uh, and we'll talk about all that in a minute. John, welcome. Hi, Peter. Nice to be here. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of different stuff, but there's one thing I want to start off with. Um, it's something you're particularly interested in this month. Um, you held a conference to talk about notifications. Now, these are the little messages that pop up on my iPhone and tell me there's a new story from the New York Times or a new level of Candy Crush that I can play. Seems pretty straightforward to me. What's interesting to you about notifications? Why spend half a day talking about this with a bunch of really brainy people? Um, so, you know, periodically through the, through the history of Betaworks and I think through the sort of the history of, um, of technology as I've been part of it, we've seen these sort of transitional points where new platforms emerge, uh, that are, uh, that, that become the primary interface for user interaction. So w what that means is, is that, you know, when you wake up in the morning, uh, you know, what you used to do on the internet was go to a browser, probably go to Google and sort of start your day, right? Uh, when you wake up in the morning today, you know, many people will open their phone and use their home screen to navigate the apps that they put on their home screen. It's essentially a hierarchy of apps, uh, a field of icons that they use to navigate and sort of uh, start their day with one app and then the other app. Increasingly, the notification screen, you know, what you described as sort of an alert structure uh, is becoming, it's sort of routing around the applications or the apps and uh, giving people a direct path into a specific application or a specific thing. Uh, it reorganizes the apps instead of being category-based, it's all times-based, right? In, in iOS 8 uh, and Android now, it's a time-based stream Before of we get alerts. multiple levels into this, right? Yeah. You're just talking about the basic idea saying instead of me going out and looking for stuff I want, whether on a website or an app, stuff's going to come to me, routed to me by some combination of the, the people who made the phone and the people who made the software. Am I summing that up at the high level? Correctly? Yeah, at the high level, that's right. Yeah. And, and, and that's a big deal to you because why? It, it's a big deal to me because I'm always thinking about what is the sort of primary experience that people have, what's the first way that they're touching uh, both content and services on their device or on their, as they relate to the cloud and compute. And so, and okay. So you think this is important because it's going to change the way that I consume my information, or change the economics of the way that people are bringing me stuff? I think it has. A, I think it has the potential. We're right at that sort of tipping point where it's the potential to change all of the above. And so I think that you know the new platform, the mobile platform, is still in a period of flux. It still hasn't. You know, we went through on the PC platform a period of you know, seven to some people would say 14 years where there was some stability and predictability around how people would navigate and use their PCs. Uh, the the mobile device, I think, is still very much in flux, and this new notifications layer uh, has the potential to re-architect that. And I see that happening. Um, there's a series of things that, you know, we're gonna, are going to play out and we're going to do or not do as an industry in the next 12, 18 months that I think will shape that. But it, it fundamentally changes a lot. So it changes navigation. It also fundamentally changes the way you think about uh, services and content. So today you think about, I need to go somewhere to get an article from uh, Vox or Recode. Um, and n increasingly you're going to think that's going to come to me at the right time when it's, con when it's relevant to me. And so using the phone, 
using your social graph, using contextual data about where you are and what's important to you right now, the ability to push you something sort of re-architects and changes the world from a pull world into a push world, and which is a big change. Why is this happening? This is happening at a base level, right, because Google and Apple have created architecture I guess, that allows this to happen. Is this something Google and Apple want to happen? Is this something they're actively doing, or is this sort of a, uh, a side effect of some way they've, they've built their OS? Well, I mean, I would say at a very high conceptual level, I would say that, you know, you can see this sort of TikTok cycle that we go through in computing where we move from these very flexible text-based interfaces that, uh, that speak machine language to these highly visual interfaces that speak human language, in other words, visual metaphors. And we're getting better and better now at actually machine speaking visual. But generally, we've seen that TikTok cycle, you know, I think from DOS to Windows, think from the very early web, which was primarily text, all the way to the rich sort of flash web, which uh, was primarily visual. This new layer is a text-based layer. So there's one sort of point of view of this. That this is just sort of the evolution of the stack and how, you know, compute evolves, the computing stack evolves. There's another point of view to it, which is, is that the phone is just, you know, the, the initial navigation of the phone, the apps, has become, uh, has become difficult. You know, it's people have downloaded a lot of apps. The data suggests that people spend quite a bit of time organizing apps on their home screen, but they only use a limited number of apps every day. And that there's more stuff, Apple's, you know, desire, incentive, Google too somewhat, but let's focus on Apple because I think they're the real player here, um, is that people will use uh, their phones as much as possible, therefore get as much out of their apps. And I don't think they're getting nearly as much out of their apps through the app icon as they could. So let me tease this out. You're talking about a world where basically the way, the, the, the sort of the pecking order of, of, of who I go to or who delivers me information or services gets changed a bit, right? Because it's coming to me. Um, I'm going to be a little more passive about this, I imagine. Um, is this fundamentally then something that Apple is going, because they own the platform, they own the hardware, they own the software, and Google, they're going to be the, the arbiters here? Or, or do Vox and Uber and any other new app that wants to show up and, and get my attention, do they have a say in this? Yeah, so I I would not say that it's I don't think it's um I don't think it's more passive. It may actually be more active. I think that you know the person who is the primary say here will be um, the the platform owner will has a huge say in this. So let's talk about Apple. I think after that the users have a huge say in this. And so I think that the way it's architected is is that the users can come in, they can modulate, they can turn notifications off if they're getting annoying, they can say that's a good one, they can begin to speak back to the notifications. You know, I love this idea of instead of thinking about a notification as an alert, think about it as a computer asking you a question because it, that is part of what's going on here. And so I think that the um, – I think users are going to play a big role in this. Even and then, though this seems a pretty wonky thing right now for me to go in and change my notifications, I've got to go – I've got to know that I can do it. I've got to go several layers into my systems thing and then push yeah. and pull levers. I mean I'm, I'm thinking about you know my late father-in-law who was – this year was still a AOL subscriber. Yeah. Uh, right. It seems like this is maybe this is something that's going to affect the sort of people at the edge of the spectrum of, of yeah. Users. It, 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 you're you're definitely right about that. But I would argue sort of at BetaWorks generally, and you know the the I, I would argue that the this whole concept of an early adopter, which is basically what you're referring to, sort of early and late adopters, I think is being eviscerated. I think that the uh, I think that uh, many 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 more people in the world are figuring out how to become what we used to call an early adopter. I think the early adopter crowd now is becoming uh, a so it's becoming net larger, but it's also becoming more accessible to more people. And every time somebody you know learns the basics of trying to set up their phone or set up something, they you know they learn it once and they can repeat and you know continue doing it in ten different places. But yeah, you're right. It's it's going to take time. And we're definitely at the early part of the cycle. That's why we did the summit. Uh, you know, Steve Gilmore and I pulled together 60 or so really interesting people who are in all different sort of stakeholders in this in this evolving uh, notifications world. And we pulled it together and, uh, you know, held the summit on October 1st. And we just started to post the videos. You there were seven hours of video. Well, right now we've got three up. Um, there's uh, seven but there's, coming. Four more coming. 
There's four more coming. We had a lot to talk about. Right. You know, we talked about it all the way from alerts all the way to bots, right? And so, you know, I think that these notifications become programmable and you start really speaking to the computers. And that's a very, very rich opportunity and uh, and opens up a whole new world. So since we don't have seven hours to talk about this, just let's get one more notifications idea here. Yeah. You deal a lot with media companies. We were talking before we went on air about sort of your dismay that, that the big publishers hadn't figured out technology this time around and were sort of at the control of Facebook, et cetera. Um, if you're a publisher, if you're someone who makes media, for instance, and you say, John, that's a great idea you've got here about notifications. I agree. They're important. What do you do? How do you, how do you lean forward into this? Well, I think that f- I, I think a couple of things. is uh, First of all, is that uh, it, you, need to, you need to actually have an app, right? You can't, the way iOS is architected, you can't push a notification through the browser. And so you need to have an app. So you need to invest in mobile strategy. And then there were, you know, we had in the room... You know, we had John Steinberg from Daily Mail. We had some people from Fox. We had some BuzzFeed people there. We had uh, the, the Dig team there. We had a bunch of people from media who were in the room. And so, you know, as as we talked through and a bunch of them said, you know, is figuring out how to use contextual data, um, naming, you know, make that simple, is the, the, the data we have about you, that the app has about you, make it relevant when you push me a notification. And then, and then track what people are doing with those, right? Are they clicking on them, right? It's a notification is almost like you think about it as, you know, I hate to think about simplified as an ad, but I think if you consider it to be like an ad unit and track the way that you guys track ad units, track content that way, it would actually do you good. Because I think that all that tracking and all that investment that you've placed on ad units, try to turn that around and actually think of your content as something you need to understand and track. I think that would be um, uh, that's a that's a good starting place. I lied. I have one other notification question. When you said you know you should get an app, you should have an app. Everyone says they want to have an app. It turns out that most people don't want your app, right? That's why a lot of people sort of given up, or they sort of said, look, it turns out the app is Facebook. The app is Twitter to a smaller degree. We're going to publish on the web. If we're lucky, Facebook will send – through their app will send us their traffic and their users. That's really effectively all we can do. So are are you really saying that notifications are a big deal, which means that notifications on Facebook are a really big deal? Well, I mean, I think that clearly for some publishers, it's, you know, the the big platforms are becoming the the sort of the fire hoses from which they can drink. Now, they can also have some control of how notifications work in those environments, but it's more limited. They're not only gated by Apple at the high end, but they're gated by the sort of the social platform was the uh, uh, the Facebooks of the world a step down from that. So they kind of have two gates to pass through before they get to the user. Um, but I think that for a lot of media companies, that's just reality. So can we back way, way up and talk yeah, about yeah. Betaworks and, and how yeah. you got there? When, when I first met you, you were yeah. working at a, at a, at a photo-sharing company. Oh, right? wow. I forgot high, we met back High five, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, before that, you were at AOL. Um, and you founded Betaworks, I think, a few years after I met yeah. you, like 2009. Yeah. So, so what was the original idea behind Betaworks, and how has that changed over time? So, you know, at the outset, we talked about or I described Betaworks as a startup studio, and I've used the studio term f- from the from the beginning. The idea of Betaworks has always been for me is, you know, can we bring together a set of uh, a set of entrepreneurs? We can build a set of companies in 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 parallel in a studio construct. So build, you know, the same way that gaming studios build multiple games or movie studios do multiple You have movies. ideas for companies. We have ideas. Them, we have a platform of them. people, a platform of data, a platform of tools that help us accelerate the development of those companies. And, you know, we started in the early days, you mentioned, with Bitly and Chartbeat and then roll all the way forward now to Dots, to Giphy, to Poncho, to things which are more recent. These are all things that we have developed at the studio. Related to that is we do seed investing. Since we're fundamentally thesis-driven, right, so we have ideas about the world. We just talked about one for about 10, 15 minutes, notifications. You can expect us to invest and build around notifications over the next 12, 24 months. Uh, there were a bunch of companies that we're interested in who have notifications. Some, uh, there were some of those we've already invested in, other ones we might. Uh, and then things we will build around there. So our you know, sort of our fundamental sort of guiding post is uh, thesis-driven. We have ideas about the world and about the world that we're trying to 
construct and uh, and make real. And then we will build uh, and we will invest. And we've sometimes bought companies around that. So it's build, buy, and invest as the instruments to uh, to against the thesis. So it's a hybrid of, of sort of traditional investing and sort of the seed stage and, and then building companies. You would bristle if I called you an incubator, right? Because that's a term you, you, you've you got an issue with or it makes you think people I, can't create their own – can't get their own desks and pencils. No, I think that the incubator model in Web 1.0, I think that the term the, – the term studio has become sort of the, the a good term for this. I mean what are the terms out there? There's incubator, there's accelerator, there's startup, school – um, and I think that, and then the startup studio, and I think that startup studio is the most apt one for this model. So, John, do you, do you like to read books? Yeah, I do. There's a cool service where we'll read books to you, and Kara Swisher is going to tell us all about that in one second. If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, Audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital audio information and entertainment on the Internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries audiobooks in every genre imaginable, business, classics, history, and self-development, just to name a few. I'm currently thinking about listening to Lena Dunham's Not That Kind of Girl, and if you want to hear more from Lena, you can go to our episode where she talks with Jenny Connor about her new newsletter, Lenny Letter. Just go to audible.com slash decode and choose from over 180,000 audio programs, download a title free, and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash decode. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today. Peter? Thank you, Kara. John, you said right before the native ad, you, you actually did have a favorite book. I do. Uh, you mean a favorite book or a book service or a book? Which, we, don't, we, know, we know you're an Audible fan, so what's your favorite book? Um, so, you know what I love is that um, right now, I, I always read multiple books, but I just finished um, Andrew Roberts' biography of Napoleon. It's awesome. I, uh, you know, it was the anniversary of Waterloo this summer. I didn't know much about Napoleon. I'm actually, I'm a Brit, but I'm also half French. And so I thought... Uh, that uh, that short little Frenchman, I should know something more about him except what I was taught in English schools, which wasn't all pretty. Um, what I love is is that you can um, uh, flip from reading the book to flip into using Audible to flip into the audio. John, which, I think we're going to give you a cut of the cut of the revenue from this podcast. You know, <laughs> I, I love it. It's just like it gets the exact placement where I am, and I just go from the book into uh, the Audible stream. Noted. So I think that that's pretty great. Let's move to more modern history. When I when uh, you guys started uh, BetaWorks, I started talking about the stuff you were investing in. It seemed like you were very much betting on Twitter, uh, fortuitously. I think uh, Samize was one of your companies. That got that was a search engine that got sold to Twitter. I think you guys made a bunch of money from that. You were invested in TweetDeck, which obviously became acquired by Twitter. It was an early sort of way to to get around Twitter for power users. Bitly, the, the link shortening service, was very much affiliated with Twitter. Um, did you think early on, I'm actively going to make a bet on this service? 2007, 2008, it was still a pretty niche service at the time. No, you know, I, I mean, the thesis and the, the bet that we were actually making wasn't on Twitter. It was on social, that social discovery would sort of re, reframe discovery on the internet, right? And so we believed that um, social would route around the search engine and I would become ultimately more interested in the links that you want to share or that a set of people I follow want to share, uh, instead of going to a search engine and passively typing for you know X Y Z topic, and so that generated a huge amount of interest in Twitter because Twitter I think is the is is still the canonical example of that. It's the best example of a raw feed news feed of what the world is thinking about and talking about right now. Um, but we also were one of the first investors in Tumblr. We sold some companies uh, to, I think, two companies to Facebook. Um, we did some work around LinkedIn. So we were, you know, we we were in this sort of social discovery thesis generally. But that put us, like you said, early in Twitter, and we were early in Twitter. Uh, we thought Twitter was, I thought it was brilliant, and um, that there was a ton of potential there. We were also very early in the ecosystem, right? Which uh, you know you know, had a brief sort of sparkling um, uh, career or moment, you know, from Making 2008. Making apps for Twitter. 2008, 2010, there was an active sort of community of people making apps for, uh, for Twitter. And then in 2010 or thereabouts, got um, shut down. it got, um, I, 
It it got kneecapped. I, that sounds it's probably a more accurate term. It wasn't totally shut down, but yeah. it wasn't. It was kind of just limited. There was an infamous quadrant. It said "develop for this quadrant only," and if you yes. the other quadrant, yeah. it turns out they took that quadrant away too. Yeah. There are some people who say, "Look, Twitter isn't where it should be," and one of the reasons is because they've they went and kneecapped this this ecosystem of open source developers uh, creating stuff for for their platform. Do you do you believe in that theory? I mean, it, that's kind of a layup question because uh, since I was at the center of that ecosystem, I think it's yeah, it's yes, I do. Yeah. But I also think it's more it's more than that. Look, I think that Twitter, I think Jack being back at Twitter is uh, is huge. I think that there's granted there's some complexity about him being CEO of two companies, but I think having the founder who was like right there, him and Ev were right there with the product in hand. That having one of those people at the helm is what's needed now because I think the organization, despite all the things that they've accomplished, because they have accomplished a lot, right? They grew it into a big company. Adam Bain's done an incredible job of monetizing it. It is, it's a public company now. So it's gone through a lot of gates that most companies don't go through. Still, I think the promise of Twitter and what's being fulfilled is a fragment of what it could be. So there's two sides of this debate, right? There's the people, I guess, like you, and, and, and I think Jack Dorsey is on this side, say this could be a much bigger platform. We could reach many more people. It could be useful to right. many more people. And there's a bunch of people say, look, it's two, 300 million people who like it a lot. Right. A lot of them are journalists, so they're right. sort of over-indexed for the amount of interest there actually is in this platform. That's fine. It, sh it should be that big. It's as big as it should be. Um, it can't get much bigger. It's not going to be Facebook size. Do you think this thing can get Facebook size or much, much bigger? Yeah, look, that's why I think it's that's why I think it's worth betting on Jack coming back, right? Because I do think that that opportunity is there to sort of take this thing and 10x it on all of the major metrics. I think that the the opportunity and the promise of Twitter hasn't been fulfilled. I think that the when you think about it, you think about you know you think about what Instagram has done on the visual side. It's an asymmetrical graph. It's fundamentally similar to Twitter. It's just a visual representation of that. Twitter should have had that, right? They there wanted was, it. They wanted it. There's, but there's a lot, lot more. It ain't over. There's a lot more they can do. Um, and I think that I think that kneecapping it, the opportunity and saying it's only two, three hundred million. Let's leave it at that. Is um, I think that would be a mistake. And what do you think about the idea that the, the hottest media property, digital media property today, is a couple years old, Snapchat? It's defiantly really not social. It's social, but it's it's there's no graph for anyone else to tap into, right? It's you and your friends. It's for sharing with you and your friends. It's not it's John Borthwick and I can't figure out what some kid next to us is looking at on Snapchat. It seems like it's built and it is built in the last few years as almost a reaction to Twitter, but more importantly, Facebook saying we we don't want to share based on who you are. We want to or we want to share in a different way. It's almost a reaction to those things. Does that sound resonant to you? Or do you agree with that thesis? Yeah, look, I think that the I, I think one of the things that's so fascinating about our world right now is is that you the media and you know hypotheses thesis tend to like you articulate something and you just go in one direction. I think we're doing multiple. So I think that there are people who are craving that one to one interaction, which is more akin actually to what email used to be. But at the same time, the publicness. You can't go to a 13-year-old who's rapidly sharing on Snapchat and tell me that they are concerned about the public aspect of this because they will take an image that they've just seen on Snapchat that's hysterical and repost it on five public networks, whether it's also FM, whether it's, uh, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. So they'll repost and recycle things publicly. But the primary interaction there is a, is a private one to you know, more one-to-one, -one, more email-like structure to that graph. So, so I think the answer is that uh, the answer is a yes. It's not Snapchat and it's not, not Facebook. An it's, it's, it's an and. Both. You use them differently. It's an and. It's an. Well, between Snapchat and Facebook, I I think that Facebook is really struggling to be relevant to an entire demographic, the big blue app. Um, so I think, but Facebook Messenger is trying to round around that. Right, they so bought Instagram. It right. seems like they've right. decided they're going to buy their way out of that problem. Right, and they, I think that they're doing a, you know, it's a founder-led company who's done an incredible job of just, you know, beginning to build moats around that the Big Blue app. So you've got particular insight into the way people share and consume media because of a handful of the, the, the companies you've invested in, Bitly, which tracks links, Chartbeat, which yep. tracks what publishers are, are, are seeing, um, Instapaper, which, which allows you to save stuff and so you can see what people are saving on their phones and then reading. What are you watching that uh, from your 
perspective. You've got a ton of data coming in. What are you watching about the way that people consume and share media that would surprise someone who doesn't have access to your data? Well, I think, I mean, look, one area which I think has become, I've become fascinated by in the last couple of years is, you know, what, uh, let's just generally call it post-literate media. Um, so I'm talking about GIFs um, or GIFs, depending on your flavor. What the correct pronunciation is? Is GIFs. Okay. Um, it's absolutely GIFs. No. Um, so, uh, you know, we built something in that space uh, called Giphy, uh, which has now become the largest search engine. Uh, for gifts, uh, it's also linked into many of the social platforms that we're talking. And about. And there, when I search like for for a, for a gif, a gif. That, that's a gif. You mean a gif? <laughs> go with gif. Uh, it comes. It that's it. It shows up with my first search result. That's, yeah, yeah, that's what you want. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, but it's also Giphy is also embedded in social platforms. So you know, if you jump on Facebook Messenger, and you know, we've we've done deals with a bunch of um, uh, social platforms, uh, and so. Uh, but go back to the media type. Is that you know what? What are we talking about? We're talking about um, we're talking about short, about fifteen frames. I think the average is actually about eleven frames. A couple loop, seconds, a loop, second or two. Loop media, right? And this idea of loop media, I think, is fascinating. No audio. Uh, I also, I think, is a huge part of its popularity and its allure because it becomes a very very short sort of way of me expressing a lot of content actually. Um, in a very sort of small slice of media. And you can watch it for a couple of seconds or some of them are entrancing and you watch them for more than that. Um, you can always click on them and never be nervous that if you're on a train or something, there's going to be like that, oh, shit, I forgot to turn off the audio. Um, and so there's kind of safe... They're highly portable, highly shareable, and they're safe for consumption on any of the... Platforms because so when you the describe this post-literate media, are you talking about a world where people literally don't want to or can't read and write, and they send out emojis and gifs instead? Or are you saying these are annotations and additions to other kinds of media? I, I think that's an that's an and again, not an all. Um, I do think that one of the things I'm fascinated by is that I think that when Steve Jobs presented us with you know this this device that we're both looking at, right? These, these iPhones. Um, you know, that really was a device from the future. And the degree to which it is visually, that communication has become visually uh, rich and uh, textually impaired because of the structure of this device, uh, you know, lack of a keyboard, the fact that it's got such a high-quality screen that's only getting better over time, the fact that it's got a high-quality camera, et cetera, et cetera, we're becoming a much richer visual society. But then we spent the first fifteen minutes of this podcast talking about notifications. That this is text-based. Yes, this is this yes. is text. We've gone. We've gone. And, and I'm talking to you on a podcast, yes. which is audio-based. So we're going to have different modalities. We're different modalities, right? Point. And that they they want to interact. But the visual aspect of this, I think, is particularly interesting. Now, if you want to talk about podcasting, that's another area we're super interested in. Let's talk about podcasting. Okay, you, since you've invested podcast, in podcasting, meta, meta. podcasting. Yeah. I, you don't need to sell me on the merits of podcasting. I've been listening forever. It seems like other folks are starting to figure this out as well. Um, what? First of all, was there a tipping point, do you think, in sort of the ascent of podcasting? Or yeah. have we not reached that yet? No, I think that there was a tipping point. I, I, I think that sometime about 18 months ago, we hit a te technical tipping point. I think with iOS 8... You saw that battery power and battery consumption was good enough that they actually left Bluetooth on by default, right? Whereas I believe it was iOS 8 where that flipped over. Um, and that was an important juncture because now Bluetooth is on your phone all the time. So actually pairing the devices and getting into the car because that drive time, that couple of hours a day that most Americans spend drive time. And that coupled with the fact that we, you know, the the... The replacement cycle on cars is, what, seven, eight years. So that's long. But cars today, a new car you get today, a rental car you get today will be Bluetooth enabled. So I think that suddenly we've seen that tipping so point. So if I want to hear it in my car, it's no longer that yeah. technically challenging. And then I think that, I mean, you can't get away from this without talking about some of the content. And there's awesome content which is being produced. You know, we have uh, we have an investment in a company called Gim Gimlet Media that does three podcasts, which are awesome. I'm also I have the pleasure of serving on WMYC's board. WMYC is you know an incredible set of podcasts. Uh, you know everything from Radio Lab to Freakonomics to um, uh, New Tech City, which is an awesome sort of more local podcast that they do. Um, content. So I think that uh, Serial uh, was a sort of Serial, the, the pump was primed and Serial helped, like, sort of push it forward. 
but along with a lot of other great podcasts. And I think now, now this is becoming a medium that is, um, is, is finally seen its day. And do you think uh, just sort of like gravity because of economics of gravity and economics, these things sort of coalesce into a handful of podcast channels dominated by a handful of big players or just a world where you, there's going to be podcasts that have 10 listeners and someone makes them sort of the, 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 the old blog construct, right, where people originally thought, oh, I'm going to blog about my cat and, and someone want to read it. And that went away over time. It turned out that the, the blogging worked much bigger as a scale business. Do you think podcasting ends up that same way? Yeah, look, I mean, we're, we're sitting here doing this podcast right now in the studio. And so I think that uh, the you could see that studio-produced podcasts are uh, significantly better than just doing it on your phone. Yes, you can do it on your phone, which is awesome and gives a degree of you know accessibility to this medium. But I do think that aggregators will have a role here. I also think the social platforms have a role here, right? Podcasts move around just like we talk about other content types. They move through the social platform. And then obviously Apple has a role here, right? Apple's podcasting app, which they have, you know, I would say under-invested in systematically, but just enough to keep it alive, I think is an, is a hugely important piece of this puzzle just because it's the default app that people use um, when they're on the iOS platform. I remember talking today. to the guy who ran podcasts at South by Southwest a few years ago at Apple, and he was surprised that I wanted to talk to him. Um, and when you say was, the guy, there was only one. It was a guy. He worked well, by How himself. many people on his team, probably? I think it was him. Yeah. And he was sort of yeah. shocked that, I, that someone knew how to use that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's look. It's you go back to the genesis, all the way back to RSS, and it's uh, it's taken a while to get there. But I think that the idea of on-demand uh, audio uh, and uh, you know on-demand, and then also filtered by go back to notifications, uh, is you know very much part of the landscape of how we're going to be using this device. It's you know it, it's it's awesome as an as a uh, as a way to be able to touch media. Uh, when you're in transit and when you're doing something else, right? Because it's non-immersive, right? Unlike video and text, yeah. you can be doing something else. One last phone question. You guys do this really interesting home screen survey every year where you yeah. literally ask uh, your early adopter, people who, who know you and follow you, to send them a, send you a screenshot of what's on their home screen. Yeah. So you did that, I guess, uh, we'll put it in nine months ago, right? Yeah. Um, what do you think you're going to see when you see the results of this year's survey, presumably in January? What's so, going to change? So we started, you know, we started doing this as, as a survey, and then we actually released an app to do this on an ongoing basis. And then Apple you know, took the app out of the App Store about two months ago. <laughs> they did not like you surveying their, their home They screens. did not like it. It's, you know, it's very hard to get real data on this. And we learned a lot in that period. And we still have, you know, we still have users who still have the app. And we've done a web-based alternative to it. But it was certainly easier when it was actually on the phone. But, you know, the things that we learned were fascinating. I mean, it was just, it, it, it taught us just, I'll give you a few snippets. It taught us just how many users are actually willing to switch out the default apps, right? So you're, the presumption that because Apple has everything from a calendaring app to the browser to the podcasting app as default apps um, on, on their phone, people are very willing to switch them out, right? Like last time we looked at, the, I looked through the data, uh, you know, the, the mapping app that, you know, Apple's mapping app was still struggling to keep its head above water versus Google Maps. So yeah, there's a series of insights that we pulled from there. Facebook's dominance, right? Facebook's so what, what do you imagine will, will have changed uh, when the next time you do this survey in, in, in January? Well, I think that um, the, I, I think a couple of things is that I think that this fragmentation of sort of multiple apps, right? You're seeing the big companies, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world, Twitter too, if you consider Vine and Periscope to be part of that family, if they can knit them together, that sort of the, the view of sort of apps as ecosystems, which then sort of winds right back up to how do you get to those individual apps? Well, you probably get there through a notification. You, you brought this full circle. I did. Very well done. John Borthwick, thank, <laughs> thank you very you. much. Okay. If you like this conversation, we're going to have a whole extended uh, day and a half of this in February in California. It's the uh, Code Media Conference. You should go to recode.net and check that out. Kara, back to you. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, John. Great interview. Next week, I'm thrilled to announce that I'll be in New York with Ariana Huffington in the red chair. We have a lot to talk about, politics, content, and a whole lot more. Subscribe to Recode Decode so you don't miss it. Up next, Too Embarrassed to Ask with our good friend, Lauren Good. 
Today's Too Embarrassed to Ask is brought to you by Audible.com, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com slash decode. This week, Lauren Good joins me here in the studio to talk about video streaming boxes, of which I have all of them and understand none of them. Lauren? How, do you, you how did you end it. up with all of them? They just, people keep giving them to me and I plug them in and I, I, I really can't get them and you to don't, watch. you don't use them? You don't I use Netflix them. and I chill. try them all. I use Roku. I use Apple. I don't use the Chrome thing that sticks in my, the side of my, I just don't understand how to access it on my giant television. Well, lucky for you, or maybe not. I don't know. There are a bunch of new ones this fall. Right, let's talk about, you know, what are, explain them all and then how do they work and what's new about them. And if you could come to my house and make them work, I'd really appreciate it. Sure. Okay. Um, so, Basically, these devices act as – well, they started out as interim devices mm-hmm. when people wanted to make their dumb TVs or non-internet connected TVs connect to the internet and play internet video. I don't right. know if you remember. It wasn't that long ago that people would actually take their laptops and use you know, USB to HDMI or something like that. Yeah, you did that. No and one ha- else did one, <laughs> so you know. We- All right. Some people, some people with a little bit of trouble dating, free time on their hands All right. would hook their laptops up to their TVs and then use that to stream internet video on their nice big TV screens. And then, so you say. And then these set-top boxes, uh, or they're actually called OTT, over-the-top boxes. So first of all, where do they come up with this word OTT? Like it's, it's over the it's top. Industry, it's industry. It doesn't is mean over anything. The top. It's industry jargon. It's, Can't they get like a streaming like a video that's coming branding in. person to come in and come up with a word? I mean, you are talking about streaming video. I guess so. But OTT, I sound like Bernie Sanders, but it's really quite annoying. <laughs> I have to tell you. So explain them. All right. So we've got a couple. Apple. Apple Amazon. makes one. Amazon makes one. Roku is a very popular one. And then there are casting solutions like Google has this Chromecast. Right, and the idea is that you're going to stick it into your TV. Right. And it's going to give you all of your favorite web apps. Right. On your TV screen. Even if you have a smart TV, some people like to use these boxes because their interfaces are generally a little bit yeah. better yeah, and I easier don't use to navigate. My, the ones on that Samsung that I got. Yeah. Giant. Samsung, for example, they have, they have, they'll have a Netflix app built in and people yeah. will still use these yeah. OTT boxes. So, all right, stop using that word. I'm going to have to hit you. All right. So <laughs> explain the new Apple TV is coming soon. Explain what that is. That's right. Cost. Apple is, uh, they're not saying exactly when, but it is coming out soon. It is more expensive than previous Apple TVs. It's a hundred and $49 for a 32 gigabyte model, but it goes up to $200 uh, for something with more storage. Mm-hmm. And you can now you use storage? Siri. Yeah. Um, so you can talk to it. So you can say, hey, Siri, uh, you know. You can do that with Comcast now, right, though? You can. You right. can do that with Xfinity right. uh, X1, which we actually use at home a lot. It works pretty well. It's, mm-hmm. You know, the cable guys get a bad rap because they just, there's sort well, of this shadow good. hanging over everyone's yeah. head and they think about calling the cable company and they feel right. like mildly suicidal. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you know, I mean, a, a Comcast is actually done a good job with voice recognition software. And so that's, why and that's does it have the storage? Do. What do you store? You can store games, uh, videos. I mean, some of the storage actually just is because you actually need to run the apps from the box. And so it just requires processing power and storage and all phone. that. So that's Apple. Um, so that's, so that's Apple. Yep, then there's a new Amazon Fire TV, which is their second generation little box. And mm-hmm. that's $100. It's available now. And one of the things that stands out about that one is it actually supports 4K streaming over the web. Right, another piece of jargon. What does that mean? 4K means super, super, super high resolution. Everything looks really crisp and beautiful. But you have to have a 4K TV that you're connecting it to. Oh, I see. And you have to be watching 4K content. So there are a lot of caveats oh, around that. What's 4K content. What is 4K content? You know, like there's there's actually Netflix 4K now. Mm-hmm. You can watch Netflix in 4K, super high resolution. It's supposed to be. I like old resolution because I saw something in new resolution the other day. And it was just too real. I felt really? like people are going to jump out of the TV. Every pore. I did. Every I crevice. Like, mm, not so much. And you thought, yeah. And it's funny because a lot of times you'll go to these industry events and they'll be showing 4K footage, but it's it's like, you know, the white polar bear in snow and the cascading yeah, waterfalls and green grass blowing in the breeze. And you're thinking, this is just not, you know, it's not really what I'm going to say. I was watching watch. Quantico. And that Priyanka, um, no. the head of it, was, is really quite. Everyone's handsome on that show, and they're handsome people. Well, they can deal. They can deal with 4K but, then. Uh, it's, no, it's no, the, I have to tell you, it's it was the a little too much Priyanka. A oh, little yeah? too much Quantico. Yeah. 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 Well, that's so that so some of these boxes are now starting right. to support. But they're going to have. It's inevitable. I can't avoid it. Yeah. So there's okay Amazon Roku. What I like a Roku. Roku. Uh, there's a new Roku Four that is 130. dollars It's shipping soon. Also supports 4K. Um, 
And one of Roku's things is that they they love to say they have tons and tons of channels. Those are basically apps, but they call them channels. They have over 3,000 channels and they have everything from like you could um, watch a Jehovah's Witness channel or you can oh. watch a Remax real estate channel. And, you know, it's like okay. it's crazy the right. wide variety right. of channels that they have. But Roku has come up with some and it's got a nice interface yeah. and it's pretty easy to search yeah, for I don't stuff. Look at any so. of channels. And then the Chromecast, which is. And then there's the Chromecast, which is a slightly different type of technology. You stick this little dongle. Every time I say that, it sounds dirty. Another there's word. no way to say you stick a little dongle into no, your TV. No, there's no way to do it. Not so have it sound now. dirty. Or say it more. One but, or the other. You have to pick one choice. Yeah. All right. So it's so, cheap. It's $35. So you once again, it's cheap. It just sounds dirty. And so you stick the cheap dongle into your TV. And it's even worse when you use the word cheap. All right, we're moving on. They're not a replacement for TV, right? They're they're not. These are not. They don't have antennas. They don't have cable cards. They're not. You're not patching into your cable through these boxes. But some people would argue that they're kind of the cable box of millennials, or at least the cord cutting generation. Right. Because a lot of People that are just never getting cable turn right. to these types of boxes or their video game consoles instead and said, this is how I'm going to get my TV cable content. to get the Wi-Fi and the... Broadband. Yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah. Right. They'll still use the the ISP, right. their internet service provider, to so get cable an internet gets you no matter what you do. Right. Right. Or like, they like get you into some triple play thing that you right. don't really want. Gosh, I just but, up for So then you're, you're paying for your ISP, but then you have a box that serves you all these apps okay. that you want. All right. So let's get to questions from readers from Brandon Lee at NJ Lee 2015. I have a Roku 2XD. Any reason I should upgrade to the Roku 3? Although now it seems to be there's a Roku 4, right? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. yeah so if he's – so the Roku 2X, the refreshed one, mm-hmm. uh, was just refreshed earlier this year and it's pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's pretty much, uh, you know – identical mm-hmm. to the other ones yeah. and it's on par. So it's on par with the Roku 3 in terms of performance. The one thing that's missing though from the Roku 2 that the Roku 3 has is that the the um the remote, the Roku remote actually has a headphone jack yeah, which, I which never sounds use. you never use it. Yeah. But if you're if you want to listen to things like your streaming music or your TV content and not disrupt the people around you, you can plug headphones into the remote and just sit there with the remote on the couch or on your lap and not bother anybody while you're watching TV. Yeah, well, I don't really care. So if so I would say house. If Brandon, <laughs> go ahead. You're so polite. I would say if Brandon, it's just me trying not to crack yes, up. I got on that. Rico okay. Decode. If uh, Brandon, if you uh, don't want to disturb the people around you, and you like the idea of having a headphone jack in your remote, then you might want to spring for the $99 Roku 3. Okay. But if you don't care, then you can pay we'll a little bit less Roku and get the 4. Roku 2. Or you could, yeah, you can pay a hundred and what is it, hundred and thirty dollars, and get right. the Roku four and upgrade to super fast processor and four K and all that. All right. Stuff. He also has. How does the Amazon Fire compare? So they both support four K mm-hmm. um, if you have a four K TV, but they do have a couple of differences. Amazon has something called Alexa, which is they Amazon's search. virtual personal assistant. You talk to it, you're like, oh Alexa, what's the weather like That's today in Jersey or wherever you are. What was that? That's their failed search effort from a couple of years ago. Well, now it's in their Amazon all Echo right. speaker. Mm-hmm. And now it's in their TV. Mm-hmm. So you can ask it questions and you can ask it to show you content and all that fun stuff. Um, I think personally, I think Roku has a better interface. I've talked to this with a, I've talked about this with a couple of colleagues and they mm-hmm. disagree with me. But Amazon has a very content centric interface. When you fire it up, you see like they're always pushing their prime content. They always watch, want you to watch Amazon Prime video mm-hmm. and they're showing you lots of shows and things like that. And then you'll click on a show like an NBC network or, or whatever. Yeah. Go, yeah. It'll, it'll, it'll say ABC. you should be watching reruns of Sex in the City or whatever it is. Right. And then you click on it. And then from there, it tells you you can watch this on Amazon Prime video or you can watch this on Hulu Plus or right. you can and watch so they're this, trying this, to sell this their stuff. They're they're sending it's oh, so it's very uh, programmatic, yeah. and then they take you to apps. Whereas the Roku interface is all channel based or apps based. So you go and it's just a bunch of it's a lot of apps, and I then see. from there it sort of they sort of act as portals. The channels act as portals to your content. So it sort of depends on how you like to navigate all this stuff that's available yeah. for us to watch these days. So I I think that. Um, and Roku doesn't ha- Roku doesn't make its own content, so, so it, it, ha- it doesn't push it, so whereas Amazon does. Switzerland, right? Perfect. So that kind of, I think those are the key differences between. Is the Roku going to get pushed out? Given like the names you're talking about, Amazon, Google, Apple. 
and then Roku. Like, how is that? Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because just a couple of years ago, uh, Roku and Apple were really neck and neck in terms of unit sales, at least domestically, mm-hmm. and how many of these things they were selling. Um, I think Roku's strategy has been, th- over the past couple of years, they want to become the operating system for TVs and for cable systems. So th- it's not uh, this way in the United States, because the cable companies still pretty much control the cable experience here. But uh, in a couple other markets overseas, Roku actually is the cable box. Yeah. And Roku now sells uh, TVs, cheap TVs, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. TCL and Hisense and l- less expensive ones, where when you fire it up, the first thing you see is the Roku interface and they're mm-hmm. controlling the whole um, experience Got of the it. TV. And so I think that I think that's the direction that Roku's going in right now. I like Roku. At least. I like the Roku. I do. I do. I like the Roku and the Apple TV. Well, okay, that means Brandon Kara is telling you you should go for the Roku if you're comparing yeah. Amazon Fire like and Roku. I like the small guy, too. Uh, and it's really good, too. Uh, okay, from Dylan St- Staley, D. Staley, at D. Staley, where's Android TV? Yeah, so I don't know if Dylan's asking this because he really likes Android TV and he's bummed we haven't mentioned it right. so far. Or if he's asking it. because he wants to know what it is. Yeah. Uh, but Android TV is what Google TV was a few years ago. Google mm-hmm. has had its ups and downs in trying Mostly to downs. create the interface for your TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It wasn't very – Google TV was not successful. They've rebranded, relaunched it as Android TV. Mm-hmm. And so now there are about – they are think about we're not going to notice? What was that? Do they think we're not going to notice? Well, the tech press notices because we're all rabid and crazy about right. this. And okay. I don't know. Maybe maybe consumers not so much, especially if they didn't really hit a critical right. mass with Google TV. Sure. But, uh, but there are about a half a dozen, maybe more devices right now that you can get and, and – and they're running Android TV as the operating system. Mm-hmm. So you notice here Google actually has – two different approaches to this whole streaming video on your TV set. They've got the Chromecast where you're sitting there, you're using an app on your phone and you're just casting the content from your phone to your TV. And then they've got Android TV, which is that it is the, it is the whole interface to your TV. Like, right. if you, you know, if you're using the Nexus player and you plug that into your TV, you're, it's going to be a whole Android experience. But the apps, I mean, the apps that they're offering are pretty much the same as some of the other ones in terms of mm-hmm. the key marquee apps. They all offer things like Netflix and Sling TV and HBO Now and YouTube and Hulu and, and stuff like that. So, um, you know, the con- those content, those apps and the content providers, I think, want to be across, you know, multi-platform. They have to be, be promiscuous, as Hollywood often is. It, it, I mean, they have to go where people are watching, right? So which one do you think will win? Do you have a winner or do you think they'll just... I really think it's too early to tell only because we haven't... Uh, Really been able to see the new Apple TV right. yet? And we're just wondering and, what channels uh, and things they get on there. Yes. And Ro- and Roku TV, we have not reviewed yet either. I have used the new Amazon Fire TV. I have used the new Chromecasts. Um, and I actually, I thought the Amazon TV was pretty good. I, I didn't think it was, if you have the first Amazon Fire TV, I didn't think this was a must upgrade now sort of thing, especially since so few people so are u- still using 4K or not Can using 4K. And so I'll have four devices on my. What was that? Table. I'll continue to have four devices on my table. Because you'll have all, to get the new they, ones. And well, do, they all have parts of things. You know what I mean? That it's you like. Not, yeah, well, yeah, because they all don't have everything. Is any of them going to have all of them, like the way a regular television is, has been? That old TV that got every network? I mean, it's, it's possible. I think that their feature, I think their feature sets, uh, in terms of the tech, it's, it's a lot of the things we talk about these days are similar. They're going to have similar hardware and similar specs and eventually they'll all offer 4K and that sort of thing. They it's going to come down to, it's going to come down to the content partners and what they can offer you in terms right. of streaming. And whoever is right. doing a really, really good job with either, um, you know, partnerships with, with producers and making great content or they're making, they're already making their own great content. All right. And you're coming to my house to fix this tonight, right? I will do. I will do that for you. All right. I would be happy to do that for you. All right, Lauren. Good. We should. We could periscope it. Oh my god! <laughs> I'll just leave the key. I'll be out. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Lauren. Good for Thanks, another Karen. exciting episode of Too Embarrassed to Ask. But I'm obviously not embarrassed in any way. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> till next week, Lauren. Good. Now moving on to Enough Said, the part of the show where I get to talk about whatever is on my mind. And here I have Kurt Wagner of the Recode staff, and we're going to talk sports, which is never on my mind. But sports it's ball. really interesting because the men and ladies love it <laughs> except for me. Uh, Ex- but- exactly. Everyone else is obsessed with it. Right exactly. Now. So explain what's going on. Fantasy sports is a really powerful part of the internet. It's the one part, for example, at Yahoo that's doing great. Um, huge participation, huge amounts of people, but big scandal right now. There is a big scandal. and, and So can you explain it? I can. Primarily, it revolves around two companies. Uh 
FanDuel and DraftKings. Right. And so fantasy sports have been around for a long time, but what these two companies do is they let people draft a fantasy team and mm-hmm. play head-to-head against other people for a, in one-day leagues. Right. But the big kicker is that they're actually putting money in a pot and, and they're winning money. And so the companies are saying this is skill. Mm-hmm. These, these people are using skill to pick their teams and, and go head-to-head. Uh, authorities are saying that this is gambling. And uh-huh. so they're running into a lot of issues right now because people are realizing they're making a lot of money, but they're not being regulated. Right. So why is it gambling? It is kind of skill, isn't it? Well, that's the argument. So some people, yeah. I, the best argument I've heard about why it's skill is people associate it to uh, buying stocks, right? right? I mean, if you're yeah. a sports fan, you do your research, you know which players are good, what the matchups are. Right. In that sense, it sounds very much like skill. But I right. think that there's a lot of unknowns still around how much skill and is it too close to, you know, traditional sports betting? Sports betting that yeah. this team is going to exactly. win. This is gonna, who is putting the pressure on it? Are, are these, these these sports bettors that have to be regulated? Or So they're seeing pressure from a number of sides right now. Uh, the New York Attorney General mm-hmm. is looking into the business model. The FBI is mm-hmm. looking into the business model. And uh, regulators in Nevada actually just shut them down saying that they thought it was, it was gambling, but it mm-hmm. wasn't regulated. And in Nevada, everything has to be regulated. Sure. And so – uh, they're not able to operate there either. So they're kind of getting pressure from a lot of different places. But I think that ultimately this is going to be a, you know, this, this industry is not going to go away. The, right. the media loves it because mm-hmm. more people are tuning in to watch the games. Right. Uh, the NFL and sports teams love it because, again, more people are, are paying attention. So it's just a matter of figuring out how they should, uh, I guess. Why hasn't it been regulated until this. now? Uh, I don't think a lot of people really knew about it, to be right. honest with you. I mean, it's been, we've been covering it pretty closely for about a year. Mm-hmm. Most people uh, really started to pick up on it about two months ago because they spent hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising. So all sure. of a sudden they were just everywhere, right. all over ESPN. I do see them everywhere. Yeah. yeah and, and that's relatively new. And then this whole recent scandal erupted because a uh, an employee of one of the companies tweeted out some information that could be helpful when drafting your team. Oh. And so all of a sudden people so said, well, what kind games. of, what kind of, you know, access do the employees have because they're also participating right. so all of a sudden they're winning money with information oh. the rest of us don't have or wow. so it's like me betting on stocks exactly like so now that's I what don't kind do of that by the way raise the flag I, I didn't think that you would it's not ethical doesn't seem appropriate i know stuff yes things like that i buy i buy like corn futures or things like that that's very no, lucrative I don't. I don't know. from what i hear <laughs> i have some stockbroker <laughs> dealing with it but let me the, the two big companies explain the two big companies who they yeah, are yes so DraftKings and FanDuel um they are the two big ones you mentioned Yahoo and they're funded. is getting they're yeah. big time funded uh, mm-hmm. i think one of them took uh, i think FanDuel took 250 million dollars over the summer DraftKings took 300 million wow. just a few weeks later uh, investors yeah, were people like Fox Sports mm-hmm. and and a lot of these big media properties. So there's a lot of people that think this is a good idea mm-hmm. and they're making a lot of money or at least a lot of people are, you know, quote unquote gambling mm-hmm. or putting money against their team. So um, but the two of them, they're, they're really the only two in the space. Yahoo's trying to get involved, but they're kind of a distant third right now. So those two have been going head to head. I kind of think they should just team up personally. Oh, I see. I think that they waste a lot of money. So what's going to happen? FBI is going to. I think it'll stick around, but and there'll I think be some regulation. There will be reg- Yeah, I mean, it has to be regulated. All right, thanks, Kurt. Of course, thank you. This has been an episode of Recode Decode. Thanks for tuning in. Next week in the red chair, we'll be back with another very special episode of Recode Decode. This time with Ariana Huffington. We have a lot of fun when we talk, so I'm really looking forward to it. Tune in then. This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes. Featuring candid conversations with leading voices like Snapchat CEO Evan Spiegel, Uber founder Travis Kalanick, reality star Kim Kardashian, Shark Tank host Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, President Obama, and more. They're all on Recode Replay. Thanks for tuning in.